Good morning, everybody. Would you, uh, would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And if you would, would you stand with me if you're able to? And we're going to read the Word of God together. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Mark 10, verse 1. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Heavenly Father, we just look to you to lead us and guide us through your word this morning, God. May you be the one that speaks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of this message is The Wrong Question, and obviously the topic here is divorce. You know, when you say the word, it just sounds ugly, doesn't it? It's interesting that as soon as we say that word, people begin to get emotional. And uh, you might ask, why would we even spend a whole message on this topic? After all, let's just you know, say we're all going to stay married and it's not going to affect us and uh, let's just move on. And of course, with Pastor Michael being at men's retreat and me having to do the message this morning, I could very easily do that and say, okay, good deal. You know, he tends to like to leave me these uh, lovely messages to teach on. We actually uh, laughed about it a little bit. But let me tell you something. About a year and a half ago, Pastor Michael gave me the task of writing some kind of paper that the elders and pastors could have and read um, on this particular topic. And um, the reason he asked me was because I'd already done an extensive amount of research. But I went back to it again and, and I put together this paper. It took me about probably four months of study, reflection, uh, and then I ended up turning it into an ebook, and the ebook is available on Amazon.com. It's called Broken. Uh, if you need more information after today, because I can't obviously cover all that this morning, but you would like more on that, you can go to Amazon. You can get that. It was really made for pastors and counselors, but anybody can read it, and you'll have more than what you hear on the topic this morning. Uh, and again, you may be saying, well, you know, why should we spend any time on this topic at all? But I think if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning of everyone who in some way has been touched by divorce, whether it's 
you yourself, whether it was your parents, whether uh, it was your grandparents, um, a family member, I'm pretty certain that there would hardly be one hand left down in this room right now. And guess what? Did you know that God went through a divorce? I'll bet most of you don't know that. Would you turn, if you would, you don't have to, but Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10. If you can find it quickly, just go ahead and turn to that. Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and every, under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted. Well, I think if we read that, that alone would deserve our attention. And as I said, I've spent many, many, many months of this, and I, I was joking with Joe Kelly the other day before the Bible Answer Show. I said, I would venture to guess that there has never been so much research done for one message on a topic that nobody wants to hear about and nobody wants to talk about. And yet, we need to talk about it. Now, I'm going to tell you, you're going to need today to put your thinking cap on. Those of you that are, well, I'm kind of that way sometimes, that maybe you like the soundbite version of things, you know, Boom, 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 just give it to me so I don't have to think too hard. I might suggest that you go on out to Sweet Fellowship, grab yourself some coffee and a donut and enjoy it because it won't be like that this morning. In fact, this topic is so emotional that it's really likely that someone will have issues with something I say this morning. So if you do, just email me at pastorbrian at livingtruthcorona.org. <laughs> Now, I'm going to start by saying that I really believe that there's been a lack of very studious attention given to this passage, uh, and it's parallel passage in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, starting in verse 1, is the very same event. And because it's a topic that people don't want to hear about and don't want to talk about, many people will not take the time, and many pastors, unfortunately, have not taken a lot of time to study all the scriptures concerning this particular topic. And it's led, I believe, to some people condemning others in the church for being divorced without biblical grounds. And it's made these people feel like they're second-class Christians. And I can tell you that it's even caused some divorced people to leave the church. So we need to know what the Bible does and what the Bible does not say about divorce. And the only way to do that is to study this passage and the other passages the same way we do every passage that we come to in the Scripture. We, 
We have to take the time, one, to study the original language. We have to put the, the passage in its context. We have to look at parallel verses and concordant verses. And we have to look at the historical background concerning that particular passage. That's the way we study every passage here at Living Truth, is it not? So let me give you an example of what happens when we just take a Scripture at face value and we don't apply these principles to that. You all know this uh, particular section of Scripture. Matthew 16, 18 through 20. You could turn to it if you want. But I'll read it to you. Remember this? Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth and shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, do you know that it was a misinterpretation of this passage that led to an entire religious system which had Peter as the head of the church and placed the traditions of man on par with the Scriptures. You know, did anyone during that time stop and think, well, wait a minute. Would God really want a man to be the head of the church rather than Jesus? Maybe we better take a closer look at those Scriptures. And guess what? When that finally happened, it launched the Reformation. So it's pretty important, don't you think? Not to just take a Scripture at face value, but to study it. Now, I want to be clear on this. Like many different areas of the Bible, there's not one lone treatise that you can read on the subject of divorce. So what we have to do is piece together all the verses and all the Scriptures that we have on that particular subject to be able to understand it. Uh, many people will go to the passage that we just read along with its parallel passage in Matthew 19 and then go back also to uh, Matthew 5, 31 and 32 and say, Jesus says that adultery is the only ground for divorce that God allows. And then they will usually add Malachi 2.16 where it says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And so that's the end of the discussion. If a person gets divorced for any other reason, it's sin, and there's no allowance whatsoever for that person to remarry because it would be an adulterous relationship. And I'll bet that many of you have heard that. But if that's true, and if that's correct, then why does Paul say this in 1 Corinthians 7, 15? He says, But if the unbeliever leaves, and that word in Greek leaves is korizo, which means to place, room between, or depart, go away. It was the word used then for divorce. So if the unbeliever divorces, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound, and that word bound means literally a slave. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. Now Paul's speaking by divine inspiration. And he seems to indicate that there is at least one more circumstance in which God allows for divorce. Now I need you to think about this, thinking cap on. If that is true, and we know that Paul would never contradict what Jesus said, then is it possible that we have misunderstood what Jesus was saying in that passage? 
Let's take a closer look at what was really taking place here. So go back to your Mark scripture here, and we look in verse 2, and we see what's happening here. The Pharisees are once again interrupting the beautiful work of grace that Jesus is doing here. He's in the middle of teaching people, and then Matthew's account tells us that he's also healing people during this time. But in order to test Jesus, they ask him a very calculated question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now Matthew adds, in this same event, Matthew adds this phrase, is it lawful for any man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And that phrase, as you're going to see, is very important to the study. Well, Jesus' response to them is, what did Moses command you? Now, at this point, they probably think, we've got him, we've got him. He's going to have to go along with what Moses said, or he's going to be guilty of contradicting the law. Well, in verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, here's where you're going to need the historical background. Since the time of Moses, there had been a debate about what the lawful grounds for a man to divorce his wife were. So, I'd like for you to turn over to Deuteronomy 24, uh, starting in verse 1. Deuteronomy, right at the very early part of your Bible. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, you see, when you read this passage in its entirety, you realize that... Uh, that it's not dealing with really the issue of what constitutes a legal divorce. Instead, it's assuming that there's been a lawful writ of divorce given by a man, which, by the way, legally freed the woman to remarry. And if the second husband dies or divorces her, the first husband isn't allowed to take her back. Moses said that that would be an abomination to the Lord. You know, it's interesting to me that some well-meaning Christian counselors, when confronted with a situation where there's been a uh, divorce, where there is no adultery occurring, have actually told people you need to leave your second marriage and you need to reconcile with your first husband. Wow. I wonder, did they read Deuteronomy 24? You know, even Jesus recognized validity in a lawful second or third even marriage as evidenced by the woman at the well. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well? How many husbands did she have? She had five husbands. So, 
unless you take the position that all five husbands died, which is unlikely, then she remarried, and Jesus said, woman, you've had five husbands. He didn't say anything about that not being valid. The only thing really invalid was the fact that she was living with one that was not her husband. Remember that? Now, we don't have the actual occasion or words uh, when Moses originally gave this permission, this writ of divorce. But nevertheless, we realize that it was granted. And so why did Moses give this permission? That's the question they asked. And Jesus says here in Mark, it was because of the hardness of men's hearts. The hardness of men's hearts. You see, what was happening at the time of Moses was the Hebrew men were like um, the men of all the other Middle Eastern cultures. They would divorce their wives basically for any reason they felt like, and they would remarry. And there was no legal paperwork required for them to do that. In fact, some scholars say, many scholars say, that all they would have to do is say, I divorce you three times, and that was it. That was the deal. One, two, three, you're out of here. You see, women at the time had very few rights and protections. They did have some, biblically, but very few. And they were basically treated like property. If you want to read about that, read all of Deuteronomy 22 through 24. I suggest that to you anyway. So Moses here was doing the women a huge, huge favor. He was requiring or permitting. It says it both ways, so I'm not going to debate about which it is. But there was allowance for a legal document of divorce that the man would have to give to the wife. That way the woman could have proof that she had been released from her marriage vows by her husband and they were free to remarry. Now this was critical for the women of that time because without the ability to remarry, they really had very little means of being able to take care of themselves. Now, if they were divorced, they might get returned back the bride price which their father had kept for them. Again, you'll have to read the book if you want more information on that. But then that was it. They had very little way to take care of themselves. You remember the story of Ruth? Do you remember when Ruth and Naomi came back to the land? What did they have to do in order just to have enough to eat? They had to go and glean the fields for their food. So you see how difficult it was for the woman at this time. Now, what was the requirement for this husband to write this writ of divorce? Well, it said in the verses that we read, he must have found some indecency in his wife. Now, there was confusion about this word indecency. The word in Greek was erva. It's been translated in most of the versions that you'll read. You might have had it indecency or yours might have said uncleanness. We mostly use that word uncleanness. So indecency or uncleanness. But there's still to this day uncertainty over what that word really, really means. What is the indecency? What is the uncleanness? But I think that most Hebrew scholars would agree with this statement that I read in one of the commentaries. It says that the most obvious literal translation of ervat davar, now that mean, that's two words, ervat mean unclean, davar the word, it really means the nakedness of a word. 
And the obvious meaning of that would be the nakedness, meaning the shame or dishonor, because that's what it meant, uh, of one of God's words or commandments. And that was the way that they kind of looked at it. So the nakedness of a word, in other words, the shame or dishonor of one of God's commandments. Now that's different than probably what we used to think of that. It also means the nakedness of a matter or of a cause, exposing a matter, exposing a cause. I told you, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on today. Now at the time of Jesus, it seemed that the term could mean pretty much anything. Many looked at it as sexual unfaithfulness, either in the betrothal stage. Remember in a Jewish marriage that they were betrothed for up to a year first. It was the same as being married, except the marriage hadn't been consummated yet. And of course, in order for that marriage to break, there would have to be a divorce or death. So either in the betrothal stage or after consummation. Now, when you really think about it, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever for it to be just a sexual infidelity. Why? Well, think back. And again, go back to Deuteronomy. In the case of sexual infidelity, the punishment was death. There was no need for divorce. The punishment for any kind of sexual infidelity outside of that marriage was death. So why would they need that to be one of the causes of divorce. Now, let's fast forward back to our passage. This issue of what the word erva uh, meant was taken up by the rabbis. And um, men who wanted to divorce their wives would basically take their case to the rabbis. The rabbis at that time you know, somewhat acted like as a pastor and a counselor, but they also were the judge of many of these cases of whether the request was a legitimate request or not. So they'd take their case to the rabbis. Well, at the time of Jesus, there was two rabbinical schools of thought on this matter. One school was the Hillel uh, school, and the Hillel taught, he was the more liberal one, he said it basically means almost anything. It could be just the lack of keeping a clean home. Or it could just mean burning the dinner. That was erva. That was unclean. Now the other school was the school of Shammai. It was the stricter school. Shammai taught that it meant only sexual infidelity, probably during the betrothal stage. And if you look back at Deuteronomy 22 later on, uh, look at and write this down for your notes, 22, 13 through 30, and that describes the trial of the virginity cloth. I would suggest that you don't do that till a little while after uh, lunch. Uh, it's not really fun to read. But it also applied to adultery committed after consummation of the marriage. Now, this latter school of thought, Shammai, yes, it seems stricter, and you go, well, I think I'd be in that school, but remember... It's really curious because why would that be the case when the death penalty was in effect? And you can find that in Deuteronomy 22, 20, and 21. Well, some scholars say that it's because the death penalty um, had been dispensed with for this offense. But that's not accurate. It's not correct. The law was still in effect. Now, 
We know that by two situations in the New Testament that the law was still in effect. Let's think back here. Remember the woman caught in adultery? She was brought before Jesus to determine whether or not she should be what? Stoned to death. So the death penalty was still in effect. Also, remember Joseph? Remember Joseph, he had an option, it seems, of putting Mary on trial. That would have been, by the way, the trial of the virginity cloth. And if she were found guilty in that trial, she would be put to death. This is what Joseph was wrestling over. Instead, he decided to put her away. That word or term is divorce, put her away. And he decided to do it quietly, without trial. So we see that the law was still in effect, but somewhere along the line, divorce became a second option. And it appears uh, that if sexual infidelity occurred during the betrothal period or be before the consummation, that the husband not only could divorce his wife, but must. If he was not willing to put her on trial, then he must put her away with divorce. Because remember, those sexual sins were considered sin in the camp, and the law was still in effect. But remember this too. This is important. Remember that Joseph was called a righteous man in connection to his decision to put Mary away. He was called a righteous man. Now, after the marriage had been consummated, after the betrothal period and the marriage was consummated, um, adultery by Jewish law still demanded stoning. Now, it may be possible that one of the reasons there this second option came about was because they were under Roman rule and under Roman influence. And remember, the Romans did not want anybody else uh, putting people to death. That was their job. And so that may be the influence that allowed for this second option. Well, with all this background, now you can see how the Pharisees, by the question they were asking here in the Mark passage, were trying to force Jesus to agree with one rabbinical school over the other. Now think about that. If they could do that, then what they were doing was actually trying to get Jesus to put himself under the authority of either Hillel or Shammai. And can you imagine that? Jesus being under the authority of a human rabbi as if they knew the law better than he did? But there might have been another sinister motive to this event. Think about this. They may have been trying to get Jesus to say something against the marriage of Herod. Remember, Herod married his brother's wife, Herodias. And John the Baptist spoke out against that marriage and said it was unlawful. And what happened to John? He was beheaded. It may be that they were trying to get Jesus to use that example and have the same thing happen to, to him. But in either case, Jesus is not going to be trapped here. So here's how he responds. Let's look again at Mark 10, 5-9. He says, Because of the hardness of the heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, 
but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Can I paraphrase here? Will you guys let me do that? Jesus is saying to these men, you hard-hearted, I'm going to get you farther, you hard-hearted men, you're asking the wrong question. Let me take you back to the beginning and remind you what God's design for marriage is. And the question you should be asking me is, what can I do to fulfill God's design and purpose in marriage? By the way, side note here, would you please note that it says God made them male and female, and only a male and female can unite and become one flesh the way the Bible has depicted here. You see, God knew what He was doing when He designed us differently anatomically speaking. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus is not interested in listing grounds for divorce. He's interested in reminding them and us about what God's design for marriage is. And He is saying that when the two become one flesh in the context of marriage... That bond is ordained by God and should not be separated. Now, that being said, did Jesus in this teaching give a grounds for divorce? Well, if we look here in the Mark account, we actually don't see that. But let's turn over to the Matthew account, same account in Matthew 19, verse 9. Matthew 19, verse 9. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And then if you go back to the original statement, you see Jesus spoke about this before the Pharisees ever asked. They didn't need to ask. They knew that he had already spoken on this. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. This is Jesus' original statement on the subject. And I think this is extremely important that this is the statement he originally made before the Pharisees ever asked him anything. Verse 31, he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Well, now, what was the occasion of this statement? What was the Sermon on the Mount? And remember that Jesus was correcting many of the statements that had been made by the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law were leading people to follow the technicalities of the law rather than following what God's heart in matters really were. So it was in that group, and you remember that group? You have heard it said, or verily, verily, I say unto you, if you're a King James person, he would start each one of these and he was going to say, this is what you've heard, but this is what I'm going to tell you. And Jesus said things like this. If you're angry at your brother, you're guilty of murder in your heart. Wow. Jesus said things like, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. Remember Pastor Michael taught on that last week. Did Jesus mean that literally? No, we have to study to know what he's really talking about there. 
And he even said this, If you look at another woman with lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And what does God care most about? Our heart. So look, if adultery is grounds for divorce, I would suppose that most women would already have grounds, and probably some, some men would as well. Let's look more closely at the actual statement that was being made here. See, the word for immorality in Greek is the word pornea. And it applies to all kinds of sexual sin. It doesn't just mean adultery. It means any kind of sexual sin. And it was often used for harlotry or prostitution. And I think if Jesus wanted to say that sexual immorality was the only acceptable grounds for divorce, then that's exactly what he would have said. But what he actually is saying here is, if a man divorces his wife for any other reason than pornea, and we have to understand what that word means, then he is causing her to become an adulteress, and the one who marries her becomes an adulterer. The chapter 19 parallel statement says that the divorcing party is also committing adultery when he marries another. And our Mark passage includes here a woman divorcing a man, and the same consequences occur. Now that's very interesting, because in, in Jewish law, women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. Hmm. So if you want more on that, you're going to have to get the ebook. Sorry, because it takes too long to explain all that. See, here's what's happening here. These Jewish men were not just getting a divorce because maybe there were some very difficult circumstances in their marriage. That's not what was happening. They were getting divorced because they wanted to remarry and they, wanted, they found other women that they liked better and they wanted to marry. So you can see that, that they obviously liked the Hillel version of interpretation, didn't they? I can find something here. That's not hard, you know. Oh, man, you served me scrambled eggs. I asked for them over hard. Indecent, unclean. And it appears at the time that this practice was rampant as you study history. I've heard that one rabbi, and I won't say his name because I've been digging into it, and I heard it on a message or two, but I haven't been able to actually find it, but that one rabbi taught that if a man found another woman more beautiful or more virtuous than his current wife, that would make the current wife unclean, and therefore she would be divorceable. Wait, is that a word? I, I just made that word up. It's a new word. You see, what these men were doing was exactly what the men were doing at the time of Moses and at the time that God divorced Israel. They were dealing with their wives treacherously. Now I want you to look back here. If you would, go back to Malachi, right before the book of Matthew, easy to find, right before Matthew, the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, and it's the famous I hate divorce passage. But we need to read the whole passage here. Malachi 2, 13 through 16. God is speaking here. He says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and with groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it 
with favor from your hand. Yet you say, or it really should be yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she, she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Does this context make that statement a little more clear to you? You see, God hates divorce because He hated the evil way men were treating their wives. The same way they had treated Him with their idolatry. And God hates all the evil that goes along with divorce. Now the men at the time of Jesus were doing the exact same thing that these men were doing. But you know what? It was even worse because what they were trying to do and was evidenced even by the question, what they were trying to do was make themselves appear righteous while dealing treacherously with their wives. This is what Jesus is speaking against in this passage. Now we can see that Jesus made an obvious assumption here that the divorcing person would not be remaining celibate. Remember, the verse itself is talking about adultery in a second marriage or the remarriage. I threw out this question in the book, and I'm going to ask you, could we possibly assume one more thing that might give us a little more insight into why Jesus spoke the way he did? Could we possibly assume that Jesus, knowing these men were going to remarry, would be completely unrepentant in what they were doing. That they would be completely unrepentant of this sin before they remarried. You're going to have to wrestle with that one. As I said, Jesus was not interested in answering the question and giving a list of reasons to divorce, and you don't see it there. But he is interested in reminding all who would hear what God's plans for marriage is. So now I know what you're thinking then are there any biblical grounds for divorce? Not with the intent of I'm going to just dump my spouse and remarry because I don't like him. And if I did divorce on the basis of infidelity that was included here, aren't I free to remarry? Well, by what Jesus said in this passage, you certainly would not be committing adultery if that were the case. Now the next question is, are there any other reasons that God might allow for divorce? Well, we already mentioned one in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And this is a lot more clear to me than the other verses. Paul was answering here a lot of questions that the Corinthians had about marriage. They were really mixed up. Those poor guys, I mean, you know, a lot of them came to know Christ and then their spouse wasn't a Christian and they didn't know what to do about that. If you were a wife and you were married to a husband who wasn't a Christian and you'd come to Christ, he was still going to the temple prostitutes in his religion. And even some of the Christians were asking, was that still okay? They were really mixed up. 
So Paul was answering a lot of their questions, and he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, he tells the believers who are married to unbelievers to stay married if the unbeliever desires to stay married. That's what he says. But he adds this in verses 15 and 16, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. That word for leave, by the way, there, as I said before, is depart, go away, it means divorce. If the unbelieving one divorces, let him go. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. Now, I firmly believe, after studying this extensively, that under bondage means that the believer is free to remarry. But then that begs another question. Well, what if a believing spouse is abandoned by one who claims to be a believer? Oh, well, what do you think? Do you think God would be stricter on that believing victim because the other one claims to be a believer? Does that seem like God's heart to you? You see, I think Paul was just answering a very specific question here, and that's why he didn't include any other scenarios there. Well, the question is then, are there any other circumstances that God would allow a divorce? Well, the Bible does not have a list of offenses that you can look at and say, I can get a divorce and I'm still good with God. It doesn't have it. And I think there's a reason for that. I want you to think about this for a second. If there was a list in the Bible that said, you can get divorced for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, how many of us, when times get difficult, would go to that list and say, where is my ticket out? Amen? We would, because marriage can be hard. It can be difficult. And sometimes we feel like, man, I don't know about this. So let me go check this list out. I'm sure I can find something in here and still be good with God. You see, then we would be the ones asking the wrong question. Now, you might still be thinking, after all this, Pastor Chris, I think you're wrong. I still think that what is being said here is that pornea is the only allowable reason for divorce. And then, of course, you have to figure out what that word really means. And I have pastor friends that believe that and they teach that. But I will tell you this, that most of them have not taken the time to study all the scriptures concerning divorce. It seems like there's these, these three camps of pastors. There's one that says no divorce for any reason whatsoever. Period. There's another camp that says no, I see in the Bible that Matthew 19 and Mark 10 says that you know, sexual infidelity is grounds. And then I may even go as far as the second one that Paul said. And then there's this third camp that says, we can't figure it out, everything's under grace, so let's not worry about it. I don't think any of those are correct. But these pastors, friends of mine, sometimes I ask them, I go, okay, do you think a person, person should stay in a marriage if they're being physically abused? Hmm. The common answer, of course, is, well, no, God's not going to want them to be physically harmed uh, in any way. So then I ask them, well, then what should they do? It's at this point, I get a blank stare. Then I ask them, 
Well, does the Bible allow for their divorce? The blank stare continues. Or sometimes I get one of these default answers as to what they should do. Well, here's what I think they should do. They should get a legal separation and wait. And then the next question comes up. Okay, how long do they need to wait and what are they waiting for? Well, back to the blank stare. You see, the Bible doesn't address this situation by saying you may get divorced if you're physically abused. But I think most of us would agree that no one should have to stay in that situation. It just seems to make sense to us. But when someone, especially a pastor, is determined that there are only two legitimate reasons for divorce, and that's adultery or abandonment, then they leave no option for that victim in that situation other than separation. And that means waiting and hoping that the other person either commits adultery or leaves and files papers or that they die. And I know that there are pastors who actually have given counsel in situations to say, you just wait it out, eventually they'll, they'll fall into that sin that allows for your divorce. Really? I'm to wait and hope and pray that that other person falls into sin or dies? Is that God's heart? I don't think so. And see, if, if there's no other option, then that person has no way of becoming free and actually really going on with, with their life. Now, how about this scenario? My good friend, Pastor Dave Rolfe, as I was writing the book and I sent it over to him to kind of check it out for me and add anything else that he might see that I could put in there. Well, this is a typical Dave. If you listen to him, you know. He threw this possibility out. Okay, what if a husband murdered the couple's children? Would that wife have grounds to divorce him? Or would God say, well, he didn't commit adultery, so you're stuck? Sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? And yet, there are people who might say, well, no grounds. You know, in a Christian marriage, we take vows, correct? We take vows. And in those vows, each person is uh, saying vows that represent a commitment to this marriage. And, you know, traditionally we say love, honor, and cherish. I kind of wish we'd write them a little bit differently. Uh, I, I wish we would put them this way because I think this is more biblical. I would like to see each person say uh, what the Bible says. Husband would say, I must love my wife with the agape love described in 1 Corinthians 13. I vow to do that. And I vow to value my wife as a sister in Christ. And I'd like to hear wife say, I vow to respect my husband and submit to the authority, uh, his authority in the marriage. And, uh, guess what? Another biblical requirement in marriage, the third one, both spouses should vow to be sexually faithful to each other and not withhold sexual intimacy from with each other. For, uh, with each other because guess what that's in the Bible except for prayer and fasting you see I'd like to see all of these requirements be placed into the vows because that represents what we are committing to the other person in our marriage 
And when we make vows in a wedding ceremony, I can tell you that God takes them really, really seriously. If you look at uh, Leviticus 19, uh, 11 and 12, and Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23, you see how serious God takes any vow we make. That's why Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't take vows unless you're going to keep them. Now, let's say a husband, and we're going to throw them under the bus because so many of them are gone to the retreat this weekend, okay? So let's say a husband just decides at some point in the marriage that he doesn't need to keep those vows. He's out every night drinking, hanging out with his buddies, spending all his family income, not leaving the wife even enough to pay the bills and feed her family. And then when he's confronted, he says, I don't care. I'll do what I want. So he's not going to participate in the marriage, but he refuses to file for divorce because after all, that would be sin, to file for divorce. And there have been spouses in this situation who after years and years of trying to make it work have finally filed the papers. And then when a so-called brother or sister finds out, they ask, well, wait a minute, do you have biblical grounds? Now, what are they asking? They're asking, has there been sexual infidelity? That's what they're asking when they say that. Because most of them have heard that that's the only grounds for divorce. As if the person should even tell them that anyway. I'm going to tell you that that man has already divorced his wife in his heart. And what does God care about? He cares about our heart. But that guy was too cowardly to file the papers. He was just going to divorce her in his heart, and that was it. This man has dealt treacherously with his wife. Now you see, all divorce is a result of sin in some fashion or other. In some way there has been sin. But I also don't want you to buy into the lie that, and you hear this all the time, well, you know, it's, it's always both people. No, it is not always both people. Though all of us sin and all of us fall short, and none of us are perfect in our marriage, that does not mean that one person is not the victim of their spouse's rebellion against God. So now that we've looked more closely into all of these scriptures, what are some of the conclusions that we can come to? And in the book I list 10 that I think are clear and 12 things to consider. You can breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not going to go through them all. Okay? <laughs> but I'm going to give you a few. One, God's will for marriage has not and never will change. One man, one woman for life. That's God's plan. Two, certainly when marital unfaithfulness has occurred, the two-becoming-one relationship has been violated. It's been broken. Three cannot become one. Paul was very clear, and that's why there's so much strong teaching in both the Old Testament and the New Testament against sexual sin because it is so important. It's also clear to me that the offended spouse in that case has a right to end the marriage if they so choose. But that does not mean that a marriage is irreparable at that point. God can, and He often does, repair the worst kind of damage in a marriage 
but it's when both parties surrender and submit to him and allow him to work. And God will not go against someone's free will if they're not willing. You know, I think we've all heard stories of tremendous situations where God has done these great works. We hear them on the radio all the time. But just like in healing, not every marriage is healed. Three, Paul allowed for divorce due to abandonment, and the offended spouse was free. Now, you might disagree with that freedom means, but because it was in the context of marriage, I believe it means you're free to remarry. Number four, a New Testament marriage is designed to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church, right? We all heard that. If you've been in my premarital counseling, and many in here have, we go through that extensively and how important that is. And that is above and beyond everything else in our marriage. We're to present a picture to the world of Jesus and the church. Now, does that mean if two people stay together no matter what, that it always presents that picture? No, it doesn't. That picture can be completely destroyed by two people who decide to stay together and yet do some of the things that we shared earlier. The picture can be destroyed. Now, here's something to think about for you. Again, thinking cap is still on. If a person has divorced someone, quote-unquote, unbiblically, but has confessed that sin before God and asked forgiveness, are they less forgiven for that than any other sin? Sadly, many people have been made to feel that way. Since 1 John tells us that when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, is that person less cleansed? Told you, you need to put your thinking cap on. I want to close with this. With all there is that we have to think and contemplate on this subject, let's make sure that we are not guilty of asking the wrong question. And I mean that in a couple of ways. If you're in a difficult marriage and wondering what to do, I would ask that you not start with the question, can I get out and still be okay with God? Or, if I get divorced for whatever reason, can I get remarried? I would say that would be the wrong question to start with. Now, don't get me wrong. It may be necessary that you end a marriage. But I urge you to start with this question. Is there any way to salvage this situation and work back to having a godly marriage? Have I exhausted all the possibilities? And I would ask all of you, brothers and sisters, who are blessed in a great and wonderful marriage, when you're speaking to someone who is in a desperate situation, so desperate that they're contemplating divorce, please do not ask them, do you have biblical grounds? That's the wrong question, and I hope now that you could see why. Instead, you might ask them, can I pray for you? Can I help you in any way here? Is there any hope that your situation could change? You know, I know that the church has reacted to rampant divorce in our country, and and 
So much so that we see it, and as I said, the word itself is ugly when we hear it, and we don't want to see it, but we can react in the wrong way. You know, um, have you ever noticed that when Jesus came upon people that were in pain and in suffering, that his first reaction was always that of compassion? Have you noticed that? That should be our first response. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak the truth in love when it's appropriate and when the Holy Spirit is clearly directing us to speak out. Well, I want to close with a verse from 1 Corinthians 13. You guys know that's probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of what love is and what love does and does not, it says, agape, that's the love we're talking about, agape never fails. And I, I truly believe that when two spouses surrender their hearts so strongly to the Lord and live in the agape love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13, which is, I am going to put my spouse's needs above my own in every possible way. And both spouses are living in that kind of situation that what is spoken here is true. Agape will not fail and the marriage will succeed. It won't always be easy and it won't always be perfect, but it will, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, it will persevere and it will glorify God. But again, that's in a place where both people are in that place and willing to do that. Unconditional agape love. And that's an encouraging thing. And I, I don't want to leave this message with not being encouraged. It was this topic that we had to speak about, and I hope it's helped you. But I want you to be encouraged that no matter what happens in your life, when you come to the Lord in forgiveness, and I would say this, one last thing I would say here, even if you are the victim of a divorce, you did not want the divorce, or you did not want what was happening that led to the divorce, I would say this, that it's always a good idea, no matter what, for you to go to the Lord and contemplate and say, God, what do you want to show me out of this situation? What do you want to teach me? Because as I move on in my life with you, I want to serve you with my whole heart. And I want you to show me anything that you need to cleanse out of my life. And when you have confessed your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive your sin. And He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And He will take your life and He will put it in a good direction. He has a plan for you. It's a plan for good, not of evil. So brothers and sisters that have gone through this, please, you're not a second-class citizen. You're a child of God, the most holy God, who loves you and desires good things for your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's a tough hour, Lord. It's a subject, again, that we don't even like to think about or talk about, but yet, Lord, it, it's one that we have to deal with. And I just thank you, God, that you have given us much to think about, much to contemplate, much to take to you in prayer. And Lord, I pray for everyone in this building who has gone through or been touched as, as a child of uh, divorce, ones that have gone through, ones that are going through or trying so hard not to go there. I pray for each one of those, Lord, that they would just have your mercy shed upon them, that they would look to you for every answer, that they would ask you the right questions and not the wrong questions. And God, that you would work great and mighty things in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that we are forgiven. 
Lord, that when we come and confess to you that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all our sin. So Lord, I thank you for the time that we've had together this morning. I pray that you would use it in a great and mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen.